Future editing Daniel here again. Uh, this is part two of uh, a two-part episode on The Voice, uh, the referendum happening in Australia on October 14th. Uh, so if you haven't listened to part one, recommend you go back and listen to episode 403, uh, which is the first half of this episode. Otherwise, stick around and let's get into part two. Welcome back to How Did It Come To This, where the news is like a sequel to history. Last time we discussed referenda in Australia, and we are now ready to discuss Indigenous people's quest for a voice. Joining me uh, is a woman who is someone's daughter, it's Siobhan Doherty, and a man who is someone's son, it's James Tuckwell. And of course, our special guest this week is the woman who agreed to be my wife, it's Dee Matters. Of course, I am Daniel Matters, and we are going to pick up our discussion where we left off with Siobhan about to talk about the Indigenous fight for rights and freedoms. So, yeah, I guess like we can throw it over now to my side, mm. which is talking about uh, the the Indigenous history. Um, you could go all the way back to 1788. Do you want to go did. back in time? Can we? Yep. Ready? Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, yeah, so I think when we're looking at the um, the statement of the heart, the mm, Uru statement, mm. which is um, where all of this is coming from, and the three things that the statement is asking for is voice, which is what the referendum is yep. about, then treaty, then truth. Yep. Um, and so I thought I would go back and and look at the ideas of treaty as well and just mm. um, an Aboriginal political activism sure. throughout the ages. Um, I think it was very important and people don't really know, but like sovereignty was never ceded yeah. by any yeah. Indigenous people. Um, well, yeah, I talked about Terra Nullius in, yeah. in the intro. So, um, for those who don't know, yeah, Terra Nullius is a, is a Latin term and it's a legal concept that mm. the British used – um, in coming to Australia saying, mm. hey, this place has no one that lives here in sense that they feel like they own the land. Mm. Yeah. That's what they were saying. Yeah. So they were saying no one no one says they own land, so now we can say we own it. Yeah. Uh, land belonging to no one. Land belonging to no one. And and in the yeah, in the sense that they did not see anything here that resembled um civilization or society the way that the British, in a British sense. Yeah. yeah. Mm. They were looking for buildings and fences and books and then none of that was here. Yeah. Um but um, it's interesting too that um, Captain Cook was also given instruction to um, get the consent of. They knew there were native people here because yeah, he, yeah. he, he'd been here eighteen years previously. Yes, um, and uh, to get the consent, he was instructed to get the consent of the people, and just never did it. It was right. Terranolius land belonging to no one. Um, and so I had a little look. Have you read Dark Emu, Bruce Pascoe? I haven't. I've always wanted to and I, I never yeah, have. Yeah, I haven't either, but I was watching some clips about, and it's just so fascinating, um, the the stuff that he is um, 
learning about and and discovering. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's about how um, Indigenous people were 100% using the land in mm. an agricultural oh, sense. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. he's using um, like the, the uh, diaries of explorers and things like that mm-hmm. um, who would describe that, um, like they said, one thing that blew my mind, um, there was an explorer who said that the land in Adelaide was mm. terraced. Oh, they really? They terraced the land. Wow. Yeah, which is like, you know, a farming technique that yeah. they've used all over the world. That has always been sort of an indication of um, complexity with agricultural yeah, concepts crazy. and things like that. Yeah. So, and like, so there's this explorer going, oh, yeah, well, there's this terraced land over here. And then, and then another one in Western Australia. Um, where they were growing crops uh, tilled. He was like, so you could see the land had been tilled. And wow. he's like, as far as the eye can see. Yeah. Um, and so this is the type of stuff that Bruce Pascoe is getting into um, to sort of show that, you know, Terranullius was was wrong from the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is the stuff that has not been taught in schools. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, like I'm, I say until recently, I'm like, but even now I don't think it do- goes I mean, far the, enough. Yeah. Like our, our current syllabus doesn't. Doesn't really, the, doesn't cover no. it. No, no. So um, yeah. So that was really interesting. And I also found out in my, um, in my research that there actually were some really early attempts by like a small group of people to, um, to come up with treaties. Oh, really? So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So in 1835, a guy, you'll love his name, uh, John Batman. Hey. Batman. I'm assuming um, you say Batman. I'm assuming. No. I'm going to say Batman. Well, because <laughs> I, I, no, I think th- there's a federal electorate named after him. Probably. And it's Batman. No. He's Batman. Two against one. <laughs> Isn't it funny that the, the nerd was like, I think it's Batman. No, and the- not funny. Predictable. <laughs> okay, okay. Fine. Yeah. Cool. Um, so, yes, he was one of the founders of Melbourne and he attempted um, to uh, enact a treaty with the Wurundjeri people twice. Right. Um, but the New South Wales Governor Burke uh, refused to recognise the treaty. So that's 1835 and in 1837. Um, and then in 1837, the very first uh, Attorney General of New South Wales, whose name was Sax Bannister. Ooh. Like, what a rad name. Yeah. <laughs> um, he started to promote the idea of a treaty. And he was supported by the uh, retired government, Arthur, sorry, Governor Arthur, who in Tasmania. So some yeah, right. very prominent people mm. in the early 1800s uh-huh. saying, guys, really we should probably get a treaty going. Yeah. Um, mm. And they were just ignored. Um, and then Batman mm. must have lived for a really long time because he tried again in 1875. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, 50 years later. So he actually did. He negotiated a treaty with the Kulin people. And we're looking at Batman's treaty right now. There he is. Look, he doesn't look like oh, how yeah. I pictured that's, him. That's, but that's a probably famous. That's a famous painting. Yeah, yeah Batman's treaty at Mary yeah. Creek, nineteen thirty-five. If you if so, you look that up, that's a cool painting. Yeah, it's in the State Library of Victoria, painted in eighteen thirty-five. Yeah, isn't that lovely? And just to let everyone know, he's not wearing a black suit. Uh, nor is he looking like the Dark Knight. Mm, disappointingly. Anyway, we can use our imagination there. 
Um, so, but he also he did negoti- negotiate a treaty with the Kulin people, and the treaty was wild, right? It was like hundreds of thousands of hectares of land for literally like blankets and axes. Right. Like, so it wasn't a good so, treaty. Oh, like so, so Batman, <laughs> while, while we're like okay. talking about treaty, that's okay. amazing. How good? No, no like it was right. not a treaty of equals. Um, yeah. But uh, the. Oh, oh. Go. Okay. So James has got a thing here. So I'm actually reading below where James has highlighted here, but it says that he, the treaty claims that the Wurundjeri agreed to give Grant uh, and Fioff and confirm unto said John Batman his heirs and assigns. So the land would belong to him. Mm, yes. So that's why it was declared <laughs> void. <laughs> so it was no declared okay. invalid because he was a private citizen. Um, and then... There is not much talk of treaty on any level for mm. the next hundred years or so. Yeah. Um, which that part didn't surprise me. What surprised me what was that there were these early conversations about it because um, like some of the people out there might not know, we are the only country with um, a colonial history that does not have a treaty with their First yeah, Nations people. That's right. And I, um, I wondered too, like so during this time period too, there would have been, you know, there would have been treaties going on uh, for the Maori in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, they fought a war for it. Yeah. And I think that's, that's I think, part of it. I think right? that was part of so it. Did, yeah. So did we. Well, yes, well, that's so. That's exactly right. Yeah. yeah. So, the, but the, I feel like the wars that were fought here mm. um, were often um, sporadic and not cohesive yeah. in the way that like the Maori ones were. Well, what, yeah, go. Oh, I, I feel like what it was, our. Um, history is more about um a reaction to being attacked yeah whereas and and because something that people forget is that all of the um different colony or not colonies using your word all the tribes Mm, um that was spread across australia had their own language their own boundary yeah their nations and so the idea of coming together wasn't something that they thought about. Like if we come together and fight, because we're actually also a peaceful people, Mm. we just want to live off the land, do our thing. Mm. And so that's, I believe, that's the reason why we didn't fight Mm. the way they might have um, in New Zealand. Um, Yeah, there wasn't sort of like a cohesive... Indigenous but nation that was the other mm. thing is our land is huge mm. and that yeah that's Australia is well. a big yeah, a big yeah, country right. and mm. there's parts of our country that you don't really want to live off mm. yeah you know the heart of Australia's desert mm. yeah so you know that's there's there's lots of things going yeah. on there yeah. there's, I feel like there's this myth in Australia too that like Aboriginal people just sort of with the arrival of um, the Europeans just kind of laid down and took it, and it's really—it's not true. It's mm. like there were so many resistance fighters. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But as Daniel said, like just you know, it, it, they're different to Maori. Maori is like one cohesive and and warrior culture mm. that wasn't like indigenous, mm. like co- tribes were the most part, like very peaceful. And, and mm. so it wasn't in their nature to pick up a weapon and like, yeah. um, and, and, and it's like they're being punished for that. Whereas really it should be celebrated. Yeah. 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 Um, so yes, uh, I thought that was very interesting. And then we'll go into um, the idea of representation um, and political activism. So we had the, 
Um, I've got I've got a Kempsey fact here. Ooh. Yes. So <laughs> we have the first um, Aboriginal political organisation was formed in 1924. It was the Australian. It's actually like the historical term is Australian Aborigine Progressive Association, but we don't use the term Aborigine anymore. Mm. So sometimes when you read it, it says Aboriginal. Mm. It started in um, 1924 um, by Fred Maynard. Yep. And as far back as then, they were talking about um, representate, direct representation in right, Parliament. Right, yep. Um, so their agenda was based on um, focusing on national land rights. Yes. Um, protecting Aboriginal children from being taken from their families. Yes. A call for genuine self-determination. Yes. Uh, which I thought was interesting as early as 24 because self-determination becomes the official government policy in the 70s. Yes. Under Gough Whitlam. Yes. But as early as, as 24, they're, they're asking for uh, self-determination. Citizenship. Mm-hmm. Uh, defending a distinct ab- uh, Aboriginal cultural identity and insistence that Aboriginal people be placed in charge of Aboriginal affairs. Yeah. That was their platform wow. back in 24. So they held uh, a rally in Surrey Hills that had about 200 people attend. And then they held a second rally in October 1925 in Kempsey. Hey. Shout out to my hometown. 700 people, 700 Aboriginal people attended that conference. And it was noted in the press coverage, pleas were entered for direct representation in Parliament. Wow. Then, which is basically what we're talking about Talking about, about now. <laughs> yeah. 1924. 1924. So it's been a long time coming. Um, then we also have... Uh, the idea of activism. So there's been a lot of political activism sure. by Aboriginal people for Aboriginal people. Um, I think there's it's been there before the 20s, but they really started in the 20s. Mm. And it was the 60s that that where they really made some solid progress. Yeah. Um, so in the 60s, they were given citizenship, equal pay, financial assistance, rights to land. And then, of course, we had the Freedom Rides. Yes. Uh, where we basically just stole, stole the American idea yep. <laughs> of riding yep. around. Yep. Um, so Charles Perkins um, was the guy who uh, got together with the um, students from Sydney University. Yes. And the idea was because he felt that, like, being in Sydney, um, a lot of the issues – that impacted um, Aboriginal people were not very visible in the in the cities. And so he wanted to take it out to the country areas to highlight the inequity in housing, education, um, and a range of other um, socioeconomic type factors. So, um, yeah, he we absolutely took inspiration from um, uh, Rosa Parks and, mm. and all the other civil rights activists in America and um, visited... A bunch of towns, again, including Kempsey, yep. um, and looking at um, at the situation and highlighting uh, what was happening in these regional towns, and it has been given like direct sort of credit for the significant, overwhelming majority in the sixty-seven referendum. It's like yes. one of the, one of those factors. One of those things, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, just um, by the way, go um, Charles Perkins. Um, he uh, he played for Everton. Uh, football club um, on a trial. Um, I just thought I'd get that in there because Everton's my favourite English Premier League team. And uh, he, it's a very accomplished he, man. He, well, isn't that interesting? Like he was so good at, at football that he actually went to England to play mm. in England. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then comes back here and is like 
is actually like he's not known for that. He's known for no. his, his work in civil rights, which is great. That's yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. What does that tell you about soccer? <laughs> well, actually, while he was in while he was in Everton, <laughs> he had a confrontation with the reserve game manager uh, who called him a kangaroo bastard. Oh. oh. Yeah, which is kind of sad. That's not nice. No. <laughs> but yes, yeah, so he was he's. Uh, known as the first um, Aboriginal man to receive like tertiary education in Australia, I mm, believe. Mm. Um, yeah. Uh, so, and it brings us forward. His daughter, I think, is quite a prominent yes campaigner. Yeah, right. This. Yes. So I thought, yeah, that w- would bring us up to um, talking about the Uluru Statement of the Heart mm. and a little bit about what's going on yeah. in Australia at the moment. Yeah. Do we want to hear it? Yes. Okay, here we go. We, gathered at the 2017 National Constitutional Convention, coming from all points of the southern sky, make this statement from the heart. Our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes were the first sovereign nations of the Australian continent and its adjacent islands, and possessed it under our own laws and customs. This our ancestors did according to the reckoning of our culture from the creation, according to the common law from time immemorial, and according to science more than 60,000 years ago. This sovereignty is a spiritual notion, the ancestral tie between the land or Mother Nature and the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who were born therefrom remain attached there too, and must one day return thither to be united with our ancestors. This link is the basis of the ownership of the soil, or better, of sovereignty. It has never been ceded or extinguished and coexists with the sovereignty of the Crown. How could it be otherwise? The peoples possessed a land for 60 millennia and this sacred link disappears from world history in merely the last 200 years? With substantive constitutional change and structural reform, we believe this ancient sovereignty can shine through as a fuller expression of Australia's nationhood. Proportionately, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not an innately criminal people. Our children are alienated from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them. And our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope for our future. These dimensions of our crisis tell plainly the structural nature of our problem. This is the torment of our powerlessness. We seek constitutional reforms to empower our people and take a rightful place in our own country. When we have power over our destiny, our children will flourish. They will walk in two worlds and their culture will be a gift to their country. We call for the establishment of a First Nations voice enshrined in the Constitution. 
Makarata is the culmination of our agenda, the coming together after a struggle. It captures our aspirations for a fair and truthful relationship with the people of Australia and a better future for our children based on justice and self-determination. We seek a Makarata Commission to supervise a process of agreement making between governments and First Nations and truth-telling about our history. In 1967, we were counted. In 2017, we seek to be heard. We leave base camp and start our trek across this vast country. We invite you to walk with us in a movement of the Australian people for a better future. very powerful isn't it yeah yeah it is yeah i hadn't heard it before i've read it yeah i haven't heard it read before. well that's um that's actually from midnight oil yeah did that mm, that's yeah. so cool god i love those guys and and that's what i like so what they're asking for is not um radical i don't think and because like what i did forget to mention was all of the advisory bodies that have existed before. Yeah. And I'm going to read them out just yep. because there are so many of them. Yep. Okay. So right. from 1958, we have the Federal Council for the Advancement of Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders. Um, it was disbanded in 1978. From 1972 to 1977, we have the National Aboriginal Consultative Committee. It was abolished. In 1977 to 1985, we have the National Aboriginal Conference. It was abolished. In 1990, we have the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission. It was abolished in 2005. Then that is, yes, in 2004, we have the National National Indigenous Council discontinued in 2007. In 2010, we have the National Congress of Australia's First Peoples. It was forced out of operation in 2019. Uh, In 2013, we had the Indigenous Advisory Council. It was dissolved in 2017. And that is why they are asking for it to be enshrined in the constitution because these mm. things have been dissolved and disbanded and forced out of operation yeah. at the whims of governments when yeah. it doesn't suit the agenda of the government of the day. And yep. so there's no ability to to get momentum going. There's no consistency. And, and one of the biggest things that's been getting my goat about the no campaign is how they're talking about how this is a huge waste of money. Just like a referendum, it's so expensive. Why are we wasting all this money? I'm like, you know what's a waste of money? Starting up all these councils only to abolish them three years later yeah. when they're not able to achieve anything at the whims of the government of the day. I'm like, yeah. and it's really not a lot to ask. Like just a, a body similar to what we've already had will be there. Um, and it just can't be gotten rid of. Yeah, like, yeah. It's to me. And I think that's so the, That's one of the main things. Like I've talked to a few people about about the issue, and a lot of them kind of misunderstand this basic fact, which mm. is that what it's setting up is the like that there has to be a body, like there has to be one, mm. um, and like that's that's the main change we're making yeah. to the constitution that there there has to be enshrined in law yeah. a body mm. that will then make um, p- 
pleas to the government mm. or make give advice, give advice. to yeah. the government yeah. about things yeah. that are specifically for Indigenous people. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that that body has to exist always. Yeah. Right. And they can change how the body's made up and all that kind of, like, yeah. you know, in the same way that they can change what the parliament looks yeah. like. Yeah. Um, but it has to be there. And a lot of people, like, there are so many, like, Indigenous people in Parliament already. Like, why do we even need this? And it's like, well, no, they, they represent their political party and the electorate that they come from. They're not there to represent just Indigenous people. Like, yeah. they've, they've got an agenda like any politician does. Sure. And so these people who, and, and however they are elected and however long they serve for, that's yet to be decided the same way that anything in the Constitution gets debated and decided by parliament sure and but they that will be their job <laughs> to just go back to their community that they're not are they liberal are they labor are they greens doesn't then no none it's not about it's that it's not about that yeah so it's yeah it's just taking it it's not politicians haven't asked for it it's not politicians doing it mm, just, mm. you know it just seems very straightforward to me and when you hear the statistics about the gap mm. the gaps that exist it just blows my mind. Like um, the one that really gets me is the infant mortality rate is mm. twice as high as yeah, non-Indigenous wow. Australians. Gosh. And that really just, yeah. Yeah. And there are many, many more. The incarceration rates, the youth mm. detention rates, the unemployment rates. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it just goes on and on. The yeah. suicide rates. Yeah. Um, so it's just, I, I get baffled by the no campaign because it's just a no-brainer to me. But Well, yeah. I'm annoyed by the no campaign in the yeah. sense that they are calling people idiots. Have you have you, oh, have you if, thought about this yes. before? Right. So the no if, campaign's main <laughs> argument is if you don't know, vote no. Yeah. Right. That's their main like that's their you're motto. Stupid and you can't figure well, it out. Essentially, what they're saying yeah. is, well, oh, uh, like, oh, you can't read, so, so vote just, no. Just vote no. If you don't yeah. understand it, vote no. I'm like, well, no. If you don't understand it, how about you go and go find and out? Educate yourself. That's it. Because like all the information's out there. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah go well, for it. Well, that's, that's the problem. There's there's a lot of information out there mm. and we live in a society where um, anything can be at our fingertips. Mm. Um, Facebook, Instagram, things mm. like that, where people, um, there's no filter. Mm. So people can just post whatever they think yeah. um, and feel. And Did you also know it's not illegal to give misinformation in a referendum In a referendum campaign, campaign. yeah. It's not illegal. Yeah. Which is something we should have a referendum about later. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just That's probably a good idea. Um, yeah. We always so, go on that one. We always go on that one. <laughs> um, so I watched um, Q&A on Monday. Or actually, I watched it today. For those who don't know, Q&A is an... Uh, program on the Australia's AB. broadcasting channel, uh, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, uh, which is a government funded body. Mm-hmm. And they have a program called Q&A where they talk about political issues mm-hmm. like every week. And they have people from the government and people from you yeah. know, business but or whatever, whoever's involved in that issue of the week or whatever. Yeah. Anyway, yes, keep going. Dave. And it was, it was really interesting um, because they had Pia Miranda who was in looking for Ella Brandy. Love her. She, she was good. She's very smart. Um, there was... Dan um, Tian. Oh, Dan Tian. Yep. He was mm. the opposition. And education? No, no. he's no. immigration and citizenship, yeah. which right. I'm actually, if this is the way he feels about Aboriginal people, I would hate to see what he feel like mm. if he treats um, our migrants the mm. same. Um, there was Wesley Aird, who is an Aboriginal man, 
um, who is oh, the first person to graduate from Duntroon. Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Right. Yeah, he yeah. also has something. He, um, he's the leader of something. Okay. <laughs> I can't well, remember. If, uh, Dun- for, for those who, who we'll don't know, Duntroon is the military uh, officer's university in Australia. He's the director of the Centre for Indigenous Training and former advisor to Johnny Howard. Right. Now that would have been a tough gig. Well, John Howard, actually, the um, PK, who's the... Um, Patricia Carvelis, yes. who is the host of Q&A. Yeah. Um, she... I love her. <laughs> she really... Um, she put Dan in his place mm. numerous times. And also because she says, I'm a woman of facts. Let's mm. talk about the facts. Because yeah. he was trying to say... About you know because there was uh, one of the first questions was this is about the um the hust- hasti- hustings hustings hustings, hustings. hustings. <laughs> um, a woman who was there giving out pamphlets for the no campaign and said that um I I'm voting no because I don't want to pay um, tax, tax yep. or rates like extra yep. rates or yep. have um. Rep- Remunerations? Repar- yeah. or reparations. Reparations? Yes. Yeah. Because the belief out there is that's what we're, we want that's money. Yeah. And um, which is interesting because it's not about money. Mm. And um, Dan <laughs> was asked a few times about the fact that, you know, this is a constitutional change, not a legislative change. Mm-hmm. So it just means, like we've already spoken about, is the fact that this body can't be abolished. Mm. And like you said, Siobhan, the fact is we've had all of these people put into parliament, mm. to a system. Mm. There's these advisory boards or whatever they are, mm-hmm. but... The gap hasn't closed. No, it's and getting wider in some in some, some respects. Respects, yeah. and the fact I think one of the biggest issues is the fact that the people who it concerns aren't being asked. Yeah. So in this case, we're talking about the Aboriginal, like the Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory. They're not being consulted and in fact a lot of um there are quite a few aboriginal people out there who are kind of agreeing with the if you don't know vote no Mm. because they're scared of the government yeah because of history well they took their children away yeah Yeah. they plenty of reasons took their land took all of them and shoved them in one area and said you're all aboriginal you can get along um, and so, and there's also been a lot of failed promises. Mm. So, um, in this episode of Q and A, it there was a really interesting um, two sided view from two Aboriginal men. So Wesley Ed um, is obviously a director of his thing that he does, yep. whatever I said it was before. <laughs> um, and well, well-dressed, well-spoken yeah. man yeah. who believes that we shouldn't have the referendum, we shouldn't have a constitutional change, we should look after needs 
rather than race. Yeah. Because he's taking the constitution change as a racial thing. Right. Um. Oh, I've forgotten his name. How can I forget his Wesley name? Wesley Ed? No. Oh, Noel Pearson? Noel. Thank you, yeah. Noel Pearson. Yeah. Who is um, pretty much leading the Yes campaign. Yeah. And speaks so plainly. Mm. Um, he is um, he's a lawyer, um, and I believe, and he's the founder of the Cape York Partnership. Mm. Um, and he's they had a very they had very opposing views. Yeah. So Wesley's idea is that we should close the gap. Yeah. And just look at the disadvantage because yeah. he had. I think the audacity to say that lots of Aboriginal people now are mainstream. Yeah, this is just into Price's thing too. She thinks that like a colonial, the colonial impact on Aboriginal people doesn't exist anymore. Like it's not a thing. Which <laughs> I actually, um, I'm just like <laughs> this. Is, and for those of you who don't, just into Price is herself an Indigenous person, and she's one of the biggest, biggest uh, faces of the No campaign. Yeah, and um, it blows my mind that she can stand there and say that with a straight face. You know, it's interesting though because my mum is who um, my line of um, my um, my Indigenous line comes from. She. Um, also was thinking about voting no mm-hmm. until Daniel and I spoke to her mm-hmm. because, again, that was that misinformation. And yeah. she's the same person who years ago was like, um, Kevin Rudd shouldn't say sorry. Right, right? yeah, So yeah, yeah. Kevin 07, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, for those who don't know, <laughs> um, spoke on behalf of Australia mm. and said sorry to yeah. the Aboriginal people for – Everything, yeah, <laughs> pretty much, yeah. Um, and because my mum has that idea, well, people that are living today weren't yeah. the ones to do it. Mm-hmm. And I, my theory is, there's two reasons why you say sorry. One reason that you say sorry is because you actually did something to someone. Yeah, yeah. you know, I hit you. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Then the other sorry is, I'm sorry that something happened to you. Mm. You know, yeah. Like I can't believe you went through that. If someone's, you know, mum dies, you say, oh, "I'm so sorry to hear." Yeah. You don't go, "Well, I didn't kill her." Yeah. So what do you want from me? So you know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I've got no feelings on the matter. Yeah. And so I feel like what Aboriginal people want is one, like you said before, a voice, mm-hmm. because we we don't have one, um, and we don't have one that's strong enough. Because as we can see, we've talked quite a long time. We have. This episode, <laughs> I like it. That, like things haven't changed in a positive way. No. For um, the people who were here first. And yeah. I don't want to be, I don't want to sound like a two-year-old, like I was here first. Yeah. However, um, things happen to this group of people and – it's kind of like, well, I didn't do it or I didn't have a say or I'm not being mm. affected by it. Mm. Um, so that's the – and so Wesley's idea and Jacinta's mm. is that, well, a lot of Aboriginal people are mainstream. I guess he would include me in that mainstream um, category. Yeah. Um, 
I know you can't see me, but I'm quite white. Mm-hmm. Um, I have blue eyes. Mm-hmm. And that's also because my ancestors had a really awful history mm. and the Aboriginal gene, mm. food, like skin gene, is the weakest. Yeah. It's in, yeah, regressive. Yeah. yeah. So um, the, the idea in the past was that the Aboriginal would be bred out of yeah. people. Actually, there's a really um, – if you haven't seen Rabbit Proof Fence – Mm. before um thoroughly recommended um but um there's a scene in that where um actually it's kenneth brenner it is kenneth brenner plays the um um, the protectorate um of indigenous people in western australia yeah and he has there's this whole scene about where he's talking about breeding the aboriginal the first generation the second generation the third generation this is what they'll look like it's a really brutal like he's so matter of fact about it in the scene like yeah and i think that that's very Mm. telling of um the way people are very matter of uh, matter of fact about um other people mm, in sure, this case, yeah. you know, like they took the children, they took land, they did all this stuff. I think that in 2023, it'd be lovely if we moved forward mm. um, because I actually would love to be more connected to like, I am lucky because of my, um, my family um, spoken history I know about my ancestors. I know mm. about my tribe. I know about my totem. Mm. I cannot speak any language. Mm. But also my tribe doesn't really exist today mm. because it was, you know, like unlike Durrawal mm. or the Durrig, like very big mm. population. And so they kind of survive. Mm. Whereas, you know, um, some uh, a, a tribe like mine was smaller and so we – Married off to other yeah. people or was bred out of us. Yeah. Um, and so I would love to know my language. Mm. So, yes, I have university degrees and I've, I own my own house and I've got all these mainstream things mm. that Wesley says, but I still want this voice mm. because I might have, I might not be in that statistic with that gap, mm. but... Other people Your are. Your people are, yeah. You know, and it's not just because they could be my relatives. Mm. It's just the fact that there are a group of people out there who are disadvantaged. Yeah. And I believe um, we can do one thing by giving them um, a voice. Yeah. Um, and because Wesley also mentioned the fact that, like, well, it's fine because, like, every um, – he said every jurisdiction has an Aboriginal body. They've got mm. a reconciliation action plan. Mm. They're all just <laughs> – it's just words it's on a page. Just, yeah, very token. Um, like your thing you said at the beginning. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Words are cheap. Yes. Yeah. There is – can I – there's just this thing I want to read because I think one of the other things is um, people who are of, like, convict heritage are, like, saying, you know, that was traumatic for them. They were – you know, they committed these crimes. They – petty crimes they were brought out here and had a really tough life and and we've managed to overcome it and like so why can't they like I've heard that and I want to read this story and it is a long story um but I think it really sums it up well um so this is from Van 
Bottom, who is a writer for The Guardian. So she said, settle in, guys. Uh, my mother's side of the family originates from County Kerry, the west coast of Ireland. They were Catholic. They were poor. They spoke Irish, not English. And because of centuries of British colonialism uh, that had at one point stripped Irish Catholics of the right to own land, they had no property. With so few prospects in the old country, my mother's grandfather sought the opportunity in a new one and emigrated to Australia in 1908. He got work as a sheep shearer, which was hard, dirty, brutal. His young wife travelled with him and my grandmother and her four siblings were all born in different places as the family travelled with him from sheep station to sheep station. It was an unsustainable life and the family of seven eventually moved back to Sydney where there was an established Irish community in the inner suburbs of Surrey Hills, Newtown and Erskineville. These places are fancy now, but they used to be poor and rough. As far as I know, my grandmother and all of her siblings were out of school and working by the age of 14. My grandmother found work as a retail assistant in a department store in Newtown, which is where she met my grandfather, another Irish Catholic boy from the community um, who was also a retail assistant there. The depression hit and retail work was suddenly unstable. My grandmother's brothers went on the wallaby, um, going out to the Riverina to live as cheaply as possible off the land and take whatever work was on offer. My grandfather did whatever he had to do and took whatever work he could. Australia hadn't quite recovered from the depression when World War II broke out. My grandfather deployed in the infantry and was gone for, for years. He never talked to the family about what he saw in active service, but late in life did one day make a pile in the backyard of his old uniform medals and war stuff and set it on fire and burned it to ash, which says much. But what my grandfather and his family did receive from his war service was a life-changing act of government policy. The War Service Home Scheme provided veterans with opportunity of low-cost government homes with low insurance costs, which enabled my scrappy little working-class Catholic family to finally own property. The house they built was barely more than a fibro shack on grey sand of what was then the outer suburb of Sydney, but it transformed our fortunes. The whole family worked to pay off that loan. My mother left school at 15, but the permanence of that house meant that there was always a roof over people's heads, whether they were in work or out of it, a place to, for them to go if their relationships went bad and if they needed to get out of them, somewhere to rest if they got sick, somewhere to be cared for and die when they got old. All of this took financial strain off our family and enabled other opportunities. As my cousins and I got older, we pursued further education. One of my cousins moved in with our nana and studied from that house for her university degree. With the help of that single housing asset, our family went from immigrant itinerant shearers to university educated in three generations. Many immigrant Australian families have similar stories of opportunity and transformation, but many Aboriginal Australian families don't. I told the story of the little fibro shack house and its role in our family's class transition on a panel a few years ago. And one of the other panelists was a Murray woman from Queensland. Her family were also working class, had also weathered the depression at the rough end. Her grandfather had also served in World War II and was a veteran like my own, bearing the same unspoken witness to those unimaginable events. But her grandfather wasn't offered a war loan uh, for a war service home because he was an Aboriginal Australian and Aboriginal Australian veterans were excluded from the scheme. And from the 1940s on, while my family was slowly building some intergenerational wealth with a cheap house subsidised by the government, her family couldn't even get access to a commercial bank loan. Many families were not able to open bank accounts merely because they were Aboriginal Australians. 
remember the referendum to confer all Australian citizenship rights on Aboriginal and Torres sorry to confer all Australian Abor- citizenship rights on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians may have passed in 1967 but it put, took until 1975 for the Racial Discrimination Act to make discrimination legal. It's mind-boggling. In 1974, the year I was born, racial discrimination is still legal in Australia. So consider, before you even take the dispossession of Aboriginal Australians from their land, the stealing of children, the racism, the violence and abuse, at the key point, the economic and social trajectory of two Australian families, one single policy decision to discriminate against her family and benefit mine, structuralised and ongoing, ongoing inequality. So that was a lot, but I just wow. thought that really sums it up. It does, doesn't it? Yeah. Yep. Like one government act can change yep. a whole family. Yeah. Um, can I finish my like my Yeah, of course you can. Um, because from what Siobhan just said, Pia Miranda, mm. we love her. Mm-hmm. I wanna quote her and I think I will stop talking because sure. I could talk forever. <laughs> um she was saying that um People are just asking for a voice. Um, Sorry, I'm trying to read my really bad handwriting because unlike other people, I didn't type my notes. (laughs) Um, She, oh, so she said, it's disheartening to hear the slogan, if you don't know, vote no. Reconciliation, which is what we've been trying to do for a long time in Australia, is the total opposite and the thing that I want to leave um, the listeners with is what kind of country do we want to live in? Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mic drop. Well, um, before we go, um, I would love uh, just on a lighthearted note yes. before we go, um, I recently went to a, a concert and, and in the spirit of uh, hearing something that uh, is, is upbeat, uh, but also in the spirit of the fact that Siobhan really asked to play this a lot into this episode, we haven't played it very much. Yes. Here's, um, here's a pop punk cover of your <laughs> voice from Punk Rock Factory. Um, these guys are really good. If you haven't heard them, you should look them up. Anyway, uh, this is just, just a little bit of that one. And I really think that, like, the lyrics of you're the. Vo- I'm so glad that John Farm decided that um, what they a could legend. use the, yes. the song for the. If you haven't seen the ad for the oh, voice, the you should totally so look that good. up too. Daniel cried. I did cry. I cried. Um, yeah. but, cry um, on the daily you know, at the moment. <laughs> the lyrics really do lend themselves to the idea that mm. you know we we can do something, we can make a change. Yes. Um, that will benefit people. We're all someone's daughter. We're all someone's son. Yeah. You know. Be the voice. Be the voice, you know? Yeah. Anyway, um, I guess that's, that's how, how it came, came to this. this. Can we sing to it?
As always, you can catch us by email. How did it come to this podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at HDICTT Podcast. If you like the show, uh, you could leave us a review if you'd like. That'd be really good. Anyway, how did it come to this is written by Daniel Matters and Siobhan Doherty. Our producer is James Tuckwell, edited by Daniel Matters, original music by Lachlan McWhorter. Understand it, make a noise and make it clear. Whoa. Whoa. You're out of time, there, We tried to do something nice. And you'd <laughs> oh, sorry, I should have kept my headphones on. Should have had your headphones on. <laughs> anyway. Whoa. Whoa. <laughs>